Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Well, welcome to our 50th podcast. We're so excited to share this episode with you. First off, we want to remind you that there's still time to view our virtual Ag Emerge event, so check out the registration link found in our podcast notes. You know, there's a proverb that says, by wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Well, the goal of the Ag Emerge podcast is to share the wisdom of our guests and gain understanding and knowledge so we can help build soil health and so much more. We talk a lot about how to make changes in your operation. We talk about the incredible importance of a systems approach and how you need that community of thinkers who will help challenge you and your old ag paradigms and really explore new methods and practices that work in your operation. But we also talk about how hard it can be to adopt those practices and systems, and a lot of that can be affected by our circle of people, you know, family, friends, neighbors, and what they think about what we're doing. And that's where we're going to start today with our guests, Monty's dad, Bob Bottens, Monty's wife, Robin, and Monty himself. We're going to talk about their journey and the family connection with farming and adopting change. So, Bob, we'd love to start with you. You farm along with your wife, Connie, and with Monty and Robin, and we've heard some of your story from Monty, but we'd love to hear it in your words. Okay, well, both sides of the family have come from a farm background. Uh, we originally lived 120 miles south of here, where my parents farmed and my dad's dad farmed. And... They were pretty small farmers. I mean, my granddad had 80 acres, but uh, he raised uh, melons for basically direct marketing. And then uh, Connie's dad did a lot of uh, sales with insurance and while he farmed. And so then it's no wonder that, you know, the direct marketing took place because it's coming from both sides of the family tree. Now, the uh, my granddad used to, like I said, raise melons. He peddled melons around different places. Uh, he had a route that he went every other day, and he didn't really have much of anything, but if someone was worse shape, I've seen him give them melons for free just because he thought they needed it. And well, that's quite quite unique in, uh, in the you know, his kids were raised up in the Depression. My mom and dad got married in 36 and right in the middle of the Depression. Their first year of farming, they had a gross income, gross income of $300. And can you imagine living today, even on a week for $300? So uh, very frugal people, raised almost all their own garden meat, uh, live basically live off the land, but that's the choices they had: live off the land or uh, or die. I guess you'd say. 
So uh, that's part of the history of where we come from. Then uh, Connie's dad had some ground up here where we live around Cambridge and a neighbor had a farm for sale, but didn't want to move off for a year. And being the negotiator he was, he decided, hey, my daughter and son-in-law are looking for a place and a year from now would help them get set up a little bit better for finances. So we bought the farm on a contract with a man and his wife. And uh, a year later we moved on to the farm. So, and that's how we got here. Uh, but the history of us, uh, on Monty's side, her mom, Connie's parents and grandparents and great grandparents, that's a 150 year history. On my side, my granddad moved where he was at in 1918. So there's a hundred year history there. But uh, my nephew uh, farms some of that ground now where my granddad was has been sold and uh, is in trees now. That's awesome. And I love to hear the history of the family. I didn't know that you could actually have a genetic marker for direct marketing. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> Well, it must be because I never thought about it till yesterday when you asked me about that. The history on both sides of it is there. Uh, it's no wonder that uh, the direct marketing works. And being around sales and the farm all his life, was, it's kind of easy for Monty to pick it up and go from there. And then uh, he happened to marry pretty good, uh, got Robin involved on this, and she's uh, quite the photographer, the uh, sounding board for us to work off of. Yeah, that's awesome. And and I'm glad that you brought Robin into this because Robin, you've really watched some of this history progress as well. And you've seen sort of the direction the farm has taken too. And you've got some history. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit of your history and your family's been involved in farming as well. So tell us some of your story. All of my family were farmers, and I grew up on a 560-acre farm in Mercer County, Illinois, that my dad farmed and raised livestock, and, and so we lived out there on our own in the middle of nowhere, it seemed like, growing up as kids, but it was a good life, and, um, and then when I met Monty and I said, I do, I never dreamed um, we'd be doing some of the things we're doing, but um, my position, my job is to be his helpmate. And so um, I've just kind of picked up the ball in a lot of places there where he needs me. And um, like Bob said, just to be the sounding board for some of the crazy ideas. Um, there's a lot of great ideas. And there's been a couple that I've put my foot down on and said, you know, no, not going there. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, farming is is in my, I guess it's in my blood, and um, I, I've, I've come to realize how much I enjoy the livestock. Never thought about it much as I was, you know, in my teens and earlier years that, uh, that that had such a deep uh, root in my, in my being, and to be around them is just a, it's a real pleasure. 
That's awesome. And what I love is I'm listening to this story is that I'm hearing the connectivity between family and the land and really a heritage of what is being built here. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in the day-to-day that we're not always looking at that legacy that we're building. And so we're sitting here with two generations, we're talking about three and four and five generations past um, that have really laid that legacy. And sometimes in farming, we do things out of necessity. We kind of get in a pattern and we don't sometimes take a step back and look at that pattern. And I think that's something that I found that the Bottens family has kind of got a corner market on is really looking at patterns of things that have happened in the past and taking the best of the good practices and weeding out, pun intended, the things that don't work. Kind of makes me wonder as we start looking at these patterns or practices that started getting adopted. Bob, tell us a little bit about an idea that Monty had that kind of made you look a little cross-eyed the first time that he said, we're going to try this or do that. Well, the biggest one is cattle. Uh, coming from my mom and dad having a dairy and it's a 366 day a year job. My first impression was I don't need another job. <laughs> and so this is, this has been his, his and Robin's baby. It's the, uh, it's not mine, but I sure do like what they're doing. I mean, it's done so much for uh, the soil, the soil health, erosion control, because we're using cover crops that keep the soil from moving and, and also feed the animals. So it's a multi-win situation. And one of the things that we are mentioning, I think sometimes too much, is the heritage part. Because I really believe anybody can do anything if they want their mind made up to do it. In other words, if you want to farm and you live in a city, you can farm. You just got to make sure you go through the steps that needs to be to get there. So, I mean, I know a couple people that basically didn't start farming, but are very successful farming. And it's just because they made up their mind, they're going to do it, found the market for what they're doing, and went from there. You know, that's wise counsel. I think sometimes when we do talk about heritage, we might talk about luggage like we pack a lot of baggage with us with some heritage, right? We do take a look at some of those things, don't we? And kind of see, again, what practices work better. Can you tell me, like, what's something specific on your farm on a a particular field where you've seen the soil health improve? Like, what, what did you notice? We talk a lot about being out in the field, and I know you are a lot, too, looking at what's going on out there. Can you think of something specific, a spot that really has made a significant change? Well, we got one field where uh, Monty run the cattle on, and he said, um, I think we're going to run this late and on there and then plant the, the crop behind the cattle, June the 1st. And, okay, that's getting kind of late, but let's give it a try. What the heck? And, uh, and it Columbus was on took, his field, too. So that, yeah, was, uh, uh, that was the ultimate caveat. Sorry about that, Dad. Yeah, Columbus took a chance. Why not? 
So, uh, so he ran the cattle, pulled the cattle off, and what was it? One or two days later, we planted that, and I never seen a field turn around and come back so good and yielded more than it would than a comparable field planted three four weeks earlier without any cattle running on it and that just told me run the animals uh, they do uh, far more good than they ever do harm i think his comment was i think we need some more cattle <laughs> or maybe that was monty's comment <laughs> <laughs> well i think they are heading that way and uh but the thing is because of that you have the confidence that it's not going to hurt anything. It's going to improve, and it's that's all there is to it. It's there's no we haven't seen any negatives. We've seen uh, some equals and some positives, and to me, that's a win. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's a lot of what we find is that we see, as you said, equals and positives, and yet we're still building soil health. So, Monty, I guess we ought to let you get in this conversation. I wanted to make sure that Robin and Bob got to set the record straight on anything we might have said in the past here. But as we talk about you making these decisions on your operation and what you're doing, talk a little bit about what it's like to bring in your dad, Robin, who all do you go to as you're seeking information and, and how do these ideas come to mind as you're getting ready to implement and make changes? Well, the speakers that we select for Aggie Merge are selected for a reason. They've had a positive influence on my thought process and our farm. So a lot of the leadership and the idea to do something different comes from those outside sources. Then it goes through a filtering process where we try to watch for paradigms and not get stuck in doing what we've done because we've always done it. And I'll run it by Robin. And, you know, the two bad ideas are I'll share public key here is I'm never allowed to have a restaurant. No. <laughs> and I'm never allowed to have a dairy. No. <laughs> and it's not because she doesn't like dairy cattle. She just knows that the dairy cattle have to get milked every day, irregardless of who on the team decides to maybe not show up that day. So, which means if I'm out of town, she's milking cows. So somewhat self-serving, but uh, I understand. Um, so we bounce the idea off of, you know, Robin and I, when we're having coffee in the morning or in the evening, when we're talking about things, and then there's running it past the shop filter, okay? So that's where uh, dad and I discuss ideas and then we get the entire team involved and how do we make this work? We cuss, we discuss, we argue, and we come to no answer. Then we come back and we revisit again a day later, a week later, a month later, a year later, whatever the appropriate time frame, depending on how exciting the argument was. And uh, we bring it up again and we think about it and how that could work. And some ideas are implemented quickly. Some are put off for the future. Um, some are, you know, midterm. It just depends on where we're at in the local context and rotation-wise and capabilities, time management, those kind of things. So I think that's a part of that process. But I think what Dad just said there earlier, you know, one of his famous sayings, and, and he said it, and I've heard it thousands of times, is, hey, you know, Columbus took a chance. And what he means by that is don't be afraid to do anything and really aren't. And we've had probably more failures than successes, but in every failure, we learn what 
doesn't work just as well as what does work. Each, each is equally valuable. And I think farmers, we need to be okay with failing. Now we don't want to fail the whole farm, but it's okay to have something that doesn't work. Because if you, if you don't have something that doesn't work, you're, you're not trying. Talk a little bit about how you actually adopt these practices or the trials that you do. You don't go, okay, we're going to do it on everything we own. You, you really use a method to kind of figure out how to adopt a practice. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the method would be the more promising the potential, typically the larger portion of the acres we will implement. So some of the things as far as in the co-cropping arena, pretty excited about that, went pretty big on acres on first year, and, and we've continued on that. The, the cattle thing, we started small, but that's, that's ramped up quickly. Um, other things, 60-inch rows, we kind of, we started with that mid-aggression, and we've, we've dialed that back because we just haven't had success with that. So it kind of depends on what we see the potential to be how much we'll try in order to experience it in different environments. But because we are trying so many things, not only for interest of our farm in mind, but also interest of Ag Solutions Network and coaching our customers on how these practices could work for them, you know, five to 10 years down the road, get enough vetting in, our whole farm winds up essentially consumed in various tests and protocols. So, um, that's, that's part of it. You know, we'll have six or seven different moving parts going on at a time. And while we're doing a small portion for that, you know, one through seven parts, by the time you do seven different things, you have a large percentage of the farm is consumed in doing those things. So that's, that portion of it's a little bit of an exception, but we're trying to eliminate the, you know, five or six out of those seven that just isn't viable so that we can pass the one or two on uh, to the next stage and to our dealer member network and our customer network. But he also has a, a gauge that he uses of uh, a, a pain limit. You know, we have to do enough to um, be in the game on what we're doing. It's not just a, a trial. It, it's, it's a serious, you know, but, but not enough to hurt too bad should it not work. Yeah, if you're just doing a couple passes of something, you're not going to pay attention to it. But if you're doing a field or half a field, maybe two fields, you're going to gear up to do it right with the right equipment and the right process and time to where you're giving it truly a real world fair shot. Well, and you know, we've talked a lot about these, you know, real farm trials that, that they're doing and, and where there is some investment in it. I think one great example, Dad, is... What do you do when you've got 3,000 bushels of non-GMO beans that has some wheat contamination in it because the harvesting didn't work quite right on the companion crop? You don't just all <laughs> of a sudden throw away 3,000 bushels of beans. You become an expert at seed cleaning. Yeah. And if the first time don't work, you do it a second time a different way to make it work. Uh, the value of the extra premium on the product makes it well worth your time and then even the discarded contaminated part of it we use for something else so when we got done we had maybe uh out of that 3,000 bushel we may have had 50 bushel that was uh basically junk the rest of it was used for something 
either animal feed, cover crop seed, or something. And then we got a premium with absolutely no discounts when we took it in and uh, you get a dollar and a half of bushel premium for, for your work. Makes you feel pretty good. Yeah. I think that that just kind of brings to mind uh, resourcefulness. And that's something that I think a lot of growers have is that they're good at problem solving and, and finding solutions uh, when things don't quite go how they expect. And uh, Robin, what do we get dad every year for Christmas? Speaking of resourcefulness. Hey, hey, be careful. Duct tape and zip ties. <laughs> duct tape and zip ties. You can do anything with duct tape and zip ties. I try and camouflage it every year in a different looking kind of box, but it's always exciting when he opens the, the duct tape and zip ties. Yeah, well, I resemble that remark as well. So um, it makes it know, easier to change. It makes it, it easier to change. It does. It does. And, you know, I would probably be remiss if I didn't let Bob chime in on the dairy cow uh, situation. I think you told a little story about milking some dairy cows when the power went out. Tell us that story, Bob. Well, I don't remember the year, but it was back before anybody had a generator. And we lost power and the cows need milk. And so, okay, no power. What do you do? You milk them by hand. And my mother milked 16 cows that morning. I milked six. And I thought my hands were going to fall apart just because squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. But she did 16. I did six. I tell you, that's amazing what, the, what she was able to do. I don't know if I ever told you this. The cows were used to her with a dress on. She had pants on under a dress, but she always wore a dress. When they see me without that dress on they would get kind of flighty so i would have to wear an uh, apron and when i put that apron on okay i'm one of the girls so i'm fine and the, the total difference how the cows reacted to it because she did most of the milking and uh she uh, uh unbelievable hard-working woman just unbelievable and uh, i think robin can relate okay that don't need to reinvent that wheel I'm, 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 a, I got a little bit of a brain there. Yes. <laughs> I appreciated that story very much. And I thought we wanted to make sure we got to hear that. So you were communicating with the cows there, having your apron on, making sure they were calm. And, and that kind of drew out a little bit of what Monty was saying about how you guys vet ideas. And he mentioned you run it through the shop filter. And I think it's important for people to, to think about that because we've had folks like Holly Green on podcast and even just last podcast talking with Dwayne Beck and, and he was talking about how you see things and how you think about them. And I really think sometimes we forget that when we're working with our group of whoever our influencers are or our team, that we really keep that communication open and that we know that when we're challenging that idea, it's not that we think that it's not a good idea, but that we just want to make sure we look at all the angles. And it doesn't mean that you have to throw up in the air and say, no, we're not going to do it, but that you just keep coming back to it and revisiting it. I think that's important. You guys, how do you feel about how that communication goes? Well, how do you see that happening, Bob? Well, there's so many, I guess, like you call it, said outside influencers. Uh, you know, even I went to a class reunion and 50th one go on this 50th broadcast. And one of the other guys in the, in the class was a farmer and 
he farmed uh, 3,800 acres or like that. And he started looking at cover crops. And first year he liked what he saw, second year he planted every acre with cover crops. But he also is seeing the benefits of what it does for the soil. And he's 100% cover crops every year. Uh, I mentioned to him one time, uh, we were thinking about a dairy and he's, oh no, 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 don't, don't, don't go there. <laughs> so he would have fit with Robin there pretty good. Uh, he just knows there's so much to it. And even they've got robotic milkers now. And I was just reading on a website just yesterday, uh, people that, what do you think of the robotic milkers? And the guy says, you're married to it even worse. He says, because somebody has to be there every day 24 7 because something goes wrong with the robot somebody's got to go fix it now can't stop so i mean there is so much in it we're lucky all right nah, it's not so much lucky we've we've talked with good and hired good people to work with that are good sounding boards that have a dairy background livestock background uh, trucking background or whatever you want to call it but we got a lot of people that know their area and are not afraid to come up and say something to help us out because they want us they want us to succeed because if we succeed they succeed you know if if, if none of this livestock works or none of the cover crops work we don't need many people to farm acres we can be like uh like a lot of people just corn beans miami and uh some years you can't afford Miami or you get thrown out because of the virus. But uh, we, because of the intensity of management of the different areas of expertise or what we're doing, it provides jobs to the people. And that, that's important. That really hits home with me. I mean, you've hit on so many things that you're talking with other people, sharing ideas about cover cropping and understanding ways to improve their land. And then you said it, you've got the right people that aren't afraid to offer up ideas and challenge other ideas, and but you work together as a team to kind of figure that out. And I think that's really key as you move forward. You've got to be able to bring in all of these ideas, but also vet them and pull that together. And it makes me also kind of wonder, you mentioned the automation in the dairy. You know, you're an ag mech guy, so you love the mechanical side of things. We talk quite a bit here about how automation is probably necessary in a lot of the different phases of the soil health principles. What gets you excited there in automation? Well, Monty and I have talked about that too. And uh, my guesstimate, pure guesstimate, is we're going to get to, uh, okay, uh, you know, drones are going to be the thing to deliver packages. Well, that might be in town, but we might look at smaller pieces of equipment to go through a field instead of one great big one because everything costs so much now. I mean, it's, very easy to have a million dollars worth of equipment going through the field back and forth planting corn and maybe we can do that with something smaller lighter weight less compaction and yet still get a great job done on planting the seed so this will shift and everything has shifted when i when i first started farming we plowed everything watched it blow in the winter and the spring and wash away through the year and then we went to chisel plow. Two reasons. 
It don't wash as much, don't cost as much to run. Then one year he couldn't chisel plow. Well, let's try some no-till. Well, what does it do? It don't cost as much, it don't wash as much, it's better for everything. So hey, that works pretty good there. We found out that we could plant corn into soybeans double and get a good emergence, get a good yield. So why are we going out and destroying the ground? Do it without it, that's no-till. Then we found out that we can plant beans in the corn stubble without tillage. And they grew fine, they worked fine, they yielded fine. So why are we doing it? Well, that's the way great-great-grandpa did it. Well, he's not around anymore, maybe we shouldn't do it that way. And there's too much erosion soil going down in Mississippi, we don't need that. Now we can get the same yield or better without all the consequences that we've had to deal with in the past. So uh, it's a slow shift to go from one to the other, but sometimes it just needs to be done and we, you take charge of your own thing. Well, I think I recall Monty talking about how when he started planting cover crops that you said, you mean I've been trying to get rid of all these weeds all these years and now I'm planting them? Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah, we just pick what we plant. And now the good part about the cover crops, we were pretty basic to start with. We planted rye, hold the soil in place and give a cover to the ground. That's what we started with. Now with the uh, cattle, okay, let's plant cover crops that will feed the animals also. So Ryan and Marty and uh, they come into this and they think about ahead of time what, because you, you got to get the seed stuff so far ahead of time and to get this planted and they're already talking about what they're planting two years from now because that's where the cattle are going to be two years from now. So it's a, it's a long, very defined process to get there. You know, I'm glad you brought that up and I'd love for Monty to talk a little bit about the planning because maybe that's something that kind of leads into failures that people see is that they're not forward thinking quite enough what needs to happen. So Monty, can you talk a little bit about that process that, that you all adopt that you do for planning and what, what all questions go into that process? In regards to planning, like dad was saying, we were yesterday discussing where the cattle going to be two years from now what is that crop rotation, rotation going to look like? Are we going to have wheat with summer covers? What portion is going to be a field set out for grazing only? What will that mix look like? What's our herd size going to do? Um, how is that going to be impacted by what our direct sales demand is? How are we going to transition to how many stalker cattle are we going to buy in to bring to finishing? How much eight weights are we going to bring in? What's our calving going to look like? What are we going to have for what's our coal rate going to be a part of so we know what our breeding herd is like. So then all of that is numbers, but we also have to compute those numbers to how many pounds are we going to be running essentially in the two different groups? Well, those many pounds, and we know 3% of their body weight, we need this much forage. And if we have that much forage, we need this many acres based on growth. And what happens if we have a wet spring, dry spring, wet summer, dry summer? to have the flexibility to where we're, we're meeting those targets and what's that balance between supplemental hay feeding for a week or two versus setting more acres out and how do those 
running those different what if scenarios. So yes, there's, there's some planning involved. You're never going to be perfect and you're going to get a curveball every time. But if you don't discuss those different scenarios, as far as we didn't get a good stand of the summer covers, or we've got excess spring growth, what do we, how do we manage that? Um, you know, if we don't think through those things ahead of time, when we hit that moment in time to pull the trigger, we, it, by talking it out, we know which gun to grab to shoot, <laughs> you know, where if we come up to that point in time, it's like, oh, oh gee, we got to, the cover crops ahead of us and we're not going to have summer feed. So we got to bail right away too late, you know, if we got to get the right seed that we need and those kind of things. So yes, it does require thinking ahead a lot more, but the reason we do that is we started with the principle, for example, Dwayne Beck, you want three quarters of the crops that you're planting to be high carbon content crops. Great. That's the principle. So what's our local practice? It's, you know, a corn bean wheat, there you're at two thirds or corn bean wheat cover. You're at, um, you hit that three quarter mark. And that's what we're, we're targeting. So how do we develop our system in our local context to meet those soil health goals? I like that. And what it makes me think about is clear back at the very beginning of uh, one of our podcasts, we talked with Tom Cotter and he was integrating livestock and cover crops. And one of the things that he talked about is the opportunity for, you know, redirecting things that when you have livestock, when you're growing covers, when you've got crops and you've got that diversity it really gives you a foundation really for if one thing's kind of going south on you, you've got some other opportunities. Can you talk about what that looks like? Uh, opportunities that you've had because of having the livestock or the rotations that you have? Well, one would be in a conventional practice that a lot of our neighbors experienced in 2019 is with prevent plant. That decision of and it was a gut-wrenching decision because we hadn't run into it before. Now, I know several folks in western Kansas, this is routine. You know, it's a lot of times you're doing prevent plant based on moisture conditions. But for us, we hadn't reached that decision before, so we're trying to figure it out. And we had that cattle resource that we didn't in others. So, I mean, it, it changed the dynamics on, on, on what we did there compared to uh, just deciding whether or not to plant. We had a, another alternative. And then sometimes we, we have, um, you know, opportunities where we're trying to seed cover crops within a crop or the 60 inch rows to get them growing that it's part of an experiment. But on the other hand, we can regain some value out of an experiment by running the cattle in there to create some beef off of the uh, extra that we've grown or um, just different timings thereof. So there's, there's multiple ways. Part of it's a, a, a plan thing that most everybody would experience. In other ways, it's things that might be unique to us and some of the trial work we're doing. It does give you some opportunities that you might not otherwise have in a more of a conventional system. One thing that I want to talk about is a lot of the reason that you're doing, you know, much of this work is soil health. But soil health that leads into human health and an overall legacy that you're leaving, but really focusing on those things. And probably back in, I think it was about 2016, you all brought Frank Gibbs to your farm and you did the worm smoker. Uh, Frank is a, uh, was, is a retired, I believe, NRCS officer, and he brought what he calls his worm smoker out to the farm, but basically he hooks the smoker up to a tile line and starts running smoke through the field, 
And we stood there and watched the smoke start coming out of those earth middens. Bob, you were there when that happened. Tell me a little bit about what you thought when you started seeing the smoke come up through all those earthworm middens in your field. Well, first off, I was, I was hoping he didn't catch the field on fire because it was everywhere. And <laughs> But he, uh, he pushed his smoke up the tile line. And you've seen these uh, pr- productions of uh, Hollywood where they've got this you know, smoke coming out of their smoke machines. Well, this was real smoke coming out of the ground everywhere. I mean, there was wormholes every few inches, and that was coming up in the cornrows up to 100 feet away. I mean, it was just unbelievable how much they opened up that soil to let the smoke through. Now, the odd part was the first day that we practiced this, he hooked up the machine, and there was smoke everywhere. He says, I've never seen this good a result of this smoke. And so uh, that made us feel pretty good that we had a, a good system going there. The next day when we had the uh, invited guests there, he started the machine up again. We did not have as good a result because that day it was going to rain. We were just a we have, in fact, moved the smoke test up two, three hours because we were going to get rain that afternoon. And the uh, worms closed off their mittens because they knew it was going to rain and they wouldn't let that smoke out. So it's it's one of nature's things. Nature's in charge. They'll take care of the things first. I thought that that was remarkable watching that. And I just wondered if you guys, you and Monty, how surprised you were or, I mean, you you, you hadn't done it before, so you didn't know what it was going to look like. But were you surprised to see the kind of work that, that those earthworms were doing? And I guess to me that just really spoke as sort of, it's almost like I'm from Missouri, you got to show me, you know, kind of thing. So it, it was really a great illustration of the soil health uh, in your farm. But tell me what you thought about that, Monty. Well, I don't want to sound bragging here, but what wasn't a surprise in a way because we've done the earthworm midden counts out there, really paid attention to these things. And dad and I joke around that come August time, our floor is bare from heavy residue, no-till. It's, it's bare because the earthworms have just ate everything. And we've actually got several pictures where in walking in the field, you'll see the earthworms will actually go up and reach lower leaves of corn as they're starting to, you know, dry down in the end of the season. And they're pulling those leaves into their midden. So you always worry if there's going to be a crop there, if the earthworms just don't eat the whole field, you know? (laughs) And the other fun thing is we did that interseeding this year too, and putting out 60 pounds of rye seed uh, ahead of harvest. And there was no rye that really germinated between earthworm middens because literally all of the earthworms had gone out, grabbed the seed and brought it to their midden, but there'd be like little green tufts of rye growing out of their middens. And, uh, not many survived. So <laughs> a lot of it got ate by the earthworms. So it's it's kind of a love-hate relationship with them. They definitely do help the soil open up, be more porous, take in our large rain events without running off. But them suckers are eating our cover crop seed, Kim. So <laughs> I'm a little worried about that. I didn't mean to bring up a sore subject. It is a visual you don't forget, though. It is. Very it impressive. is. And I think that that's one of the things I wanted to draw out is that Monty said it wasn't as big of a surprise to him. 
And I want you to talk a little bit about why that is. And we talk a lot here about two of the most important things you can put in your field are your shovel and your shadow. And that's something that we would really like to encourage folks to do is to be out in their field. But Monty, tell me about just some of those aha moments when you've been out digging in a field, what that looks like and what you're looking for and how that makes you make changes in in the practices that you're doing. Well, early on, we were evaluating roots when we converted over to no-till and doing applied nutrition with the planter, just uh, evaluating what was going on. And it made dad a little nervous because uh, every time I was digging up those corn plants to check them, he's like, Hey man, you're, you're, you're wasting all of our corn here. So <laughs> I had to run the math and it's about two cents a plant. So after I, after I shared that with dad, he was, he was a little better with it, but uh, you know, it, it's fun when we're, we're digging and, and you take up a root ball and you're counting the earthworms in the root ball, you know, two and three on a plant and you see them running right adjacent to the roots and just, you always learn something when you're in the field, don't matter what time of year or you you always notice something. And it isn't always with the shovel too. It's looking out over the landscape. It's, it's the smell. It's seeing birds, seeing wildlife. Um, Just there's all kinds of things that you learn just spending time in the field. The shovel was one thing. And then he says to dad, I'd like to dig, bring the backhoe out. You know, I want to go deeper. I want to, I want to get down there further. One of my favorite pictures I took early on was of a, um, an old root casing with a new root going through it. And I don't remember how far down we were. I think we we're about six or yeah, I was six at and five and six feet up there yeah. along the yeah at hole sliders where we dug that hole. Yeah, and it was just a really interesting photograph to me to see this living plant is using you know the undisturbed root casing of uh, last year's or the previous year's uh, crop. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing. I've been fortunate enough to be out in the field and, and have Monty kind of describe what's going on out there. And it, it is amazing when you see in an active microbial working soil, um, how the soil sticks to the roots. You can see the glue that we talk about. You know, you can see the activity that is happening there. And looking at it from, you know, 60 miles an hour to windshield, you you don't really see that functionality that's going on out there. And can I, I want to give a shout out to my dad here, because when I lived in California, when we were starting the business and still farming in Illinois, he was the uh, eyes and ears and in the field because I, I obviously couldn't be there and remember that time dad when we just introduced draft and we had fully applied that to all of our fields and we started getting all these red alerts from the Illinois uh, crop scouting network and about the um, Japanese beetle and what was going on and okay so it's R2 it's hot it's tasseled out. There's pollen everywhere. I'm in California and I call back to dad and I'm like, um, you really need to go check all these fields. So here he is, uh, <laughs> walking through the field in the middle of the day, covered in pollen. And you might describe a little bit about what you saw when you'd walked our field. And then we weren't discovering anything. And then what you did is you decided to walk a neighbor's adjacent field with no fence between us where that had not been fully applied with draft. And all of a sudden, you started seeing the Japanese beetles. You might tell that story. Yeah, we had one field that, like Monty said, no fence between them. 30 inches was 
One was our corn, 30 inches was some neighbor's corn. And nothing against the neighbor by any means. But walked out in there and I'm, I didn't walk right on the split line. I was out in our field a little bit and I thought, well, there's no beetles here. Then, uh, well, I wonder what the neighbors look like. You know, I'm far enough off the road, no one could see me in the neighbor's field. I don't like to do that, but I walked over to the neighbor's field and I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? The, the first row had beetles, second row had more beetles because we had some drift, I'm sure, went over there. By the time you got to the third row of his, he hardly had any silks. But if you take and got into ours, there was, they were, they were clean. There were no Japanese beetles there. And I think what we found out afterwards, or maybe Monty told us at the same time, I don't remember, but the, if a plant is under stress, the Japanese beetles want to take advantage of it and eat. Well, our plants weren't under stress, and the draft was the reason for it not being under stress. And so the beetles, ah, it's, it's, they wanted to go with something that's under stress that they could help destroy. So, I mean, it just is mind-boggling difference. I took pictures of it and sent to him. I said, what do you think of this? And made his day, that's for sure. Well, we were we were just worried because we saw all these reports and, and everything, and, and it wasn't in our fields. And I, I was worried, like, Dad, are you checking? <laughs> you know, are you looking everywhere? Because, uh, you know, it's supposed to be horrific. So it was it was great to see that, you know, the soil health directly implants plant health. You know, and then we've learned since then, plant health directly impacts animal and herd health. And and now we're seeing those links between plant and animal and human health. So it's uh, doing the right thing for soil health has just far reaching implications. I think that's really key. And I know that's a lot of what drives you and your family as you move forward on this endeavor. And one last thing I just kind of want to talk about is I know that you guys have always worked to not just do these practices for yourself, but really help to bring this information to other folks to really help people learn. And I I know you all have a bit of a teaching spirit. I know, Bob, you and I have talked before and I've been there when you've had uh, your local community college, Blackhawk East guys, kids come out and see your grain handling operation. I know that you've had them in different capacities on your farm. I know that uh, last year that you dug a soil pit on your farm uh, so that the kids could, the FFA kids could come out and judge that soil. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that looks like to help uh, educate others, especially the young kids coming up, because they need to know these changes and differences. But even as those kids were down in the soil pit, were they seeing some different stuff in your field that they might not have seen in other soil pits? Well, the kids usually at that age want to see something different. and that gives them the opportunity to come out and not be and have dad looking over their shoulder, holding them back, that they may see something and, oh, yeah, that might work. They may not say much, but it. we're trying to plant a cover crop. We're trying to plant a seed in their mind that there is a different way to do stuff. When you see people say, this won't work, well, maybe you didn't even give it a try to work. and now, when they come in there, and that was a soil judging team from the 
state of Illinois, the whole, I think the whole region, wasn't it, Monty? But anyway, the whole region came in there to judge the soils. Now, the thing was, we learned some stuff there too, because the difference in the soil on the flat ground compared to the side ground, uh, side hills gets you a, a different look of what is going on in your field. Normally, when we are out digging, we're putting in tile. We're not there digging a pit, but those pits show you so much what's going on. I think that's just really neat to be able to see what's going on, but also that you're using your farm and your experiences to help influence others and at least get them thinking about different opportunities and things. And I think we've even seen that within our team of those of us who've kind of come from a conventional ag background and really understand the differences that are being made. So, well, as we kind of wrap up this podcast and you know, it's exciting for us because we appreciate the listeners listening to 50 of our podcasts. We've got a a nice following and we appreciate you all very much. And I just want to ask, is there anything, Bob, words of wisdom that you want to share with us uh, as we depart here? I'm going to ask each one of you to, to share uh, if there's something you really want us to know before we wrap up here. Back to the saying, Columbus took a chance. Uh, we need, you, people need to just look outside their normal box and see what might be available. It might be better it probably won't be worse, that's for sure. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff that there's out there that can improve our farming operations if we give it a chance. That's awesome. Robin, as the sounding board. Well, let me tell you, um, Monty, very rarely do you find him without uh, his tablet or his phone in his hand that he's reading, he's learning, he's finding people that he can gain knowledge from. And um, there's a, there is a rare moment when, when you don't see that happen, and that's when he's in the shower. <laughs> yeah. Just because he hasn't figured out how to keep it from getting wet. Or... <laughs> and so that's where I get to see the big ideas really happen is that he, every once in a while you'll hear, hey, come in here. You know, I got, I got to tell you something. And so, so then he starts telling me these ideas. It's like, okay, honey. We even went so far as to buy a, a little notepad that is a waterproof notepad that is in his shower that when he comes up with those big ideas that we can put down, but he loves to learn and he loves to teach. And so everything he does, uh, he, he's doing it to not only benefit our farm, but for those around us who see what we're doing to encourage them to, to try something different um, and, and to bring them the leadership that they're looking for uh, to implement that on their on their own farms and so right now you know we can reach those that are close but uh, he's also he's also very connected with people at a distance too so um, trying to make a difference across the nation and in our farmers and how they how they do it yep Monty, what parting words do you have for us well i think the focus of this episode has been on the family connection with farming and adopting change. And I'll just keep my comments to family here as far as none of what we do today would be possible without our family. Um, The willingness to try something different, to take a risk uh, and and look at the risks they've allowed me to take. Uh, What a risk. And my dad uh, trusted me fresh out of college 
to manage a Case IH dealership with $4 million worth of sales and 17 employees, some of which were triple my age, if not all of them double my age. Huge risk. Um, then later on, Robin and I took a huge risk and moved to California to run a Case IH dealer out there. You know, huge risk. And then later on, we wanted to help California farmers adopt our minimal input, minimal tillage system that we were using on our farm. I just saw the ability for that to be outstanding for California farmers. And we took another huge risk, everything to go do that. And they've all served their purpose. They've all worked out well. Um, we took a huge risk moving back home, you know, with Silas and the team continuing on what we'd started there. We didn't know that was going to be certain. And, uh, God has provided for us in every one of those huge risks scenarios. And I think, uh, uh, we continue to take huge risks. We don't have to be doing what we're doing with the livestock. It, it's a huge risk, a huge investment, a huge just difference in how to do things. And I think, and if you don't take those huge risks, you don't have the opportunity to see huge differences. And I, we've been uh, led uh, to do these things and we're, we're happy to do these things. Couldn't do it without my, my dad, his ingenuity, his um, support. Couldn't do it without our teams to, to make this all happen. Um, definitely couldn't do it without my wife putting up with my nonsense at times, but also being very supportive and pushing me to go even further. And we certainly couldn't do this without God. He's been, uh, had his hand on everything we've done this entire time. And we're excited to see how he'll uh, continue to do it in the future. So at the end of the day, while we're focused on soil health and doing all the right things there, it's just like anything else, all about people. Uh, our team, our family, our Lord, and making this all possible. So it's been fun to date, and I'm looking forward to uh, what's next. What will be the next huge risk that we're willing to take? And um, I encourage everyone listening to to think and not be afraid of, of huge risks because the reward is is definitely there. That's awesome. And I just want to run that home that um, it's the team that you work with, the group that you form, the, the, the relationships that you build that really help to drive this all together. So I'm thankful for this time to recap with all of you. And Bob, thanks for joining us. Robin, we appreciate you being here. And uh, Monty and I look forward to bringing you uh, more guests this year that really challenge you to think about what you're doing in your operations. So thank you all. Thank you. We're sure glad you joined us today. So tell me, do you have a shop filter? Who's in your circle of thinkers and how are they influencing and challenging you? We hope you've gained some insight into what's worked for one family and what might work for you and yours. Thanks so much for listening. 